the home of Phoenix Suns playoff basketball. 98.7 FM, Arizona's sports station. Suns playoff coverage presented by Four Peaks Kilt Lifter. Suns playoffs roundtable special. On the court, it's the sharing of the ball. You know, that that's something that, to me, is case in point. I mean, when you when you share the ball, you're trying to make a play for the team. You know, there's no hero ball on our squad. And, and even the guys who can make those heroic plays uh, are making it for the team. It's Monty Williams, the head coach of the Suns, earlier this week, actually yesterday, talking to the media in the day in between Game 1 and Game 2 of their Western Conference semifinal series against the Denver Nuggets. Game 2 tonight. That means we open up the round table once again here in the Akchin Community Studios. Got Dan Bickley, got me Vince Murata, along with uh, Luke Lipinski and Kellen Olson, who join us in studio now to uh, get ready for Game 2, fellas. Do you want to start with another reason to just kind of roll your eyes at LeBron James? Oh, I'm always up for that. <laughs> uh, Sham Sharani has tweeted out that LeBron James is changing his number next year to number 6 because that is the number he's wearing in Space Jam 2. Okay. Wow. Wow. So that's only the second worst reason for a number change this season. Aaron Gordon wins that prize. He changed that's... when he tr- got traded from Orlando to Denver, he went to 50 because he's got a documentary coming out about how he got snubbed in the slam dunk contest. <laughs> but it's, isn't that just so LeBron that I'm going to remarket myself now based off of a superhero caricature of myself? Yes. With the number of championships that I'm aiming to win before it's all said and done. Plus, A, shouldn't he be aiming for seven? B, if you are, if you're a superstar at that level, like, wouldn't you want to keep your same number the whole time? I understand yeah. Kobe changed his, and, and Jordan had to change his at one point. But I mean, if you got the option, so wouldn't LeBron. you want to try and stay the same That's the whole time? So LeBron. Well, he did wear number six in Miami. Whatever. Well, this is also the same guy that used his uh, post game, his post series media availability to plug his movie. Yeah, I'm not playing for the Olympics. I'm playing for Toon Squad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, seemed really broken up yeah, over it. Right. Well, I hope you can afford uh, buying out the whole inventory of the number twenty three yeah. LeBron jerseys that are out there. <laughs> All right, uh, Suns uh, Nuggets tonight. Uh, look, we'll just we'll just start generically, and we'll start with Kellen Olsen. What's your biggest thought, biggest question going into Game 2 for, for for either side of this series? Just how much Denver is able to adjust because what we saw from them in Game 1 was a game plan that, that didn't work, but also they weren't executing it that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was telling that Mike Malone, sorry, Michael Malone, oh, don't want to get on that list. Uh, <laughs> he'll, he'll make an example out of you. <laughs> Do not want to be that person. Poor Cassie Hubbard. Yeah. Michael Malone, when he spoke after the game, the first stat that he referenced was the Suns hitting seven of their 13 corner threes. And we saw how easily the Suns got those. And uh, it was not by design for Denver to allow those with the way that Malone was upset about it. So I'm curious how he eliminates them because what we saw... And the Lakers series was really interesting in terms of the Lakers kind of welcoming DeAndre Ayton, getting all those paint touches. Well, this is why the Lakers were doing that, because they were worried about the rotations and and the ball placement that Paul and Booker are capable of out of almost any situation in the half court and and hitting the shooter in the corner from wherever. Uh, So I'm curious to see how much Denver adjusts. Are they going to give DeAndre 
Chris and Devin a little bit more space and get off the shooters a bit more or, or get back to them sooner? Or are they going to have some variation of what they were with in game one? I think if it's the latter, they're going to be in a really tough spot tonight. Yeah, yeah that's that's exactly what I kind of laid out earlier, that, that either they went too soft at trapping the ball or they just need to do something completely different because it's like they didn't realize how good of a passing team the Suns are. Well, and, and let's say that, too. Regardless of what the plan was for Denver, the Suns have two of the best uh, passers in the league in terms of finding the, the diagonal angle to shooters in the corner. Devin mm-hmm. Book has become tremendous at that pass, and Chris Paul is Chris Paul. So, um, yeah, you know, it, it will be interesting to see how how Denver adjusts. Luke, your your number one thought question going into this game? It's not even so much. I mean, maybe it's a question, but it's if Denver doesn't. If what we're talking about is Denver having to fundamentally adjust how they play, they're in trouble. But if Denver doesn't win tonight. I mean, this could be a really, really short series. And especially, I mean, if Michael Porter Jr. isn't going to be healthy, if Will Barton's not back anytime soon. Like, there's there's definitely a way where, like, the Suns win tonight, Porter doesn't look right, and Barton's not back on Friday. And, I mean, this could be a sweep, honestly. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying Denver's done. Like, if Denver wins tonight, it's a whole different series. Yes. But this Suns team is too good to lose to half of the Nuggets. And and they just they don't let up now. This is not a regular season game against Orlando. This is a team that is very talented that comes at you in waves. We saw the other night if Chris Paul doesn't have it going in the first half and Booker is doing his thing, Mikel Bridges will just carry you for a while. Yeah, and then yeah. Paul will take over and Denver just doesn't have those weapons right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was gonna say, listen, from from all those Bulls runs way back in my history, I can tell you that if the ideal thing, if you can get up three oh on a team, it gives you such a great chip in game four. Because you're going to get a desperation team from a team on the brink, and you play hard in the first half, and if you sense that that team has got too much desperation, you can give that game, come back, and win in Game 5. You get out of this thing in Game 5, and I think that's a huge inroad, um, assuming the Clippers-Jazz are going to continue on the arc they started last night. Yeah, one of the things that I'm looking at is, is just how Denver comes out. You know, they I thought they played a decent first half. Um, they got dominated in the second half. They had their their toughness questioned by their head coach, Michael Malone, for the second time already in this postseason. Uh, two points on that. How many times can you go to that well if you're Michael Malone? Uh, it worked the first time. They came back and they won that series against Portland. And B, will it be as effective against a much better defensive team? Uh, you know, The Suns are superior defensively to Portland. Kellen, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think what you're looking at with the first and the second half difference, too, was that Nikola Jokic got worn down in that game. Seeing a guy with his touch airball a three was like, oh, man, that guy's just gassed. That was in the mid-third quarter. Mm -hmm. So I think there are are two parts of game one that if Denver isn't able to to figure out or or call it a fluke or whatever, then they're, again, to Luke's point, like we're talking four or five games, which is can, can Aiden still defend Jokic as well as he did in game one? The regular season led us to believe that he could. Game one did as well. Is Jokic able to do what the Nuggets want him to do over the course of a full game without getting tired? Now, Jokic is a guy who's always had an unreal gas tank, in my opinion. I think one of the most underrated things about him has been his ability to like not really get fatigued in games, despite how lumbering and, and goofy that he looks on the court. That's never really been the case with him. But Jamal Murray being out changed a whole lot for him and put so much more on his plate that he wasn't used to before. He's the MVP of the league, of course, but with that in mind... The amount of responsibility that he has on both ends of the court, the way teams are slightly changing their schemes on him. Are we at the point where he's just starting to wear down with the load that he took on once Murray got hurt? I don't even think this might be a playoff thing. I think this might have started back when Murray got hurt. And, mm-hmm. and if those two things 
weren't a fluke and there's something legit in this series, again, like we're talking four or five games here. It, yeah, listen, if, if there is a player that Frank Kaminsky and Dario Saric can't guard, it's Nikola Jokic. We, we've seen Nikola chew up Frank Kaminsky already this season. Mm-hmm. So to me, I think you're right on the money with this. It, the idea that the Suns were able to match second for second, minute for minute, Aiton versus Jokic was really, really some powerful symbolism in game one, in my opinion, because Nikola Jokic has been a high volume kind of guy in the past and whereas DeAndre Ayton didn't never was that guy in that first round series against the Lakers DA showed I can play 40 minutes a game without getting into foul trouble and it was kind of a message that Nicole is not going to get any minutes against these backups so however you want long you want to play him our guy's going to be there I think that was powerful another key to that too was the way game one was called by the that officiating crew I thought they let a lot of stuff go there was a lot of physicality early in that game but if you look in uh, you have the luxury of, of DeAndre Ayton finishing with one personal foul in over 36 minutes of playing time. You'll sign up for that every single time. That's another thing that you know, Bick and I touched on earlier. I'll get your thoughts on it, too. The difference in officiating. I'd be willing to bet a substantial amount of money that there won't be a zero under free throw attempts for Nikola Jokic tonight. I, I, how do you expect that, that, that to change tonight? Yeah, I think the game will be a little bit more tight, I guess, is the is the right way to phrase it. I you hope, and and this is the hope with how inconsistent officiating has been this season and how inconsistent it can be game to game, you hope that's at least established early so the players get a feel for it because what you don't want is that randomly changing in the middle of a game. The things that were being let go earlier weren't now. Uh, But to the point on Jokic, again, I think that it's so interesting to look at the game that he had and the way that they were using him because there are ways to get him more involved in the offense and have him just involved more and have him have a better game, get a better feel for the game, it takes energy. Mm-hmm. He didn't have that energy in game one. So I think yeah. it's a really weird game for me personally because I think the thing that I'm going to be looking at the most is actually in the fourth quarter. Usually it's when the, the game is starting, but I'm going to be looking at how Jokic looks like he's moving in the second half because, again, if they can wear him down every game, they got no shot. It, it's, uh, it, it's, it's good timing, too, I think, that like Jokic gets named MVP during the series and Chris Paul is, is bumped all the way down to fifth for whatever reason. <laughs> Not like the Suns needed any extra incentive, but if you're DeAndre Ayton, don't you want to kind of go out there again and be like, yeah, you know what, I can, I can equal Jokic? Because we said this going in. I, I mean, that's not rocket science. If, if Ayton is going to essentially cancel Jokic out for even half the games in the series, you feel good about your chances. I'm still looking for one of these games and maybe we get it tonight, that's close. I mean, the Suns' average margin of victory in the playoffs is over 15 points. And just all their games, the average margin of victory is 12 points. So as, as exciting as this has been, we have not seen a, there's 10 seconds left, we need Booker to take the last shot or defend the last shot. I don't need to see that. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not saying we need to, we just haven't. Right? No, I know. I'm uh, by the way, for anybody wondering, if Scott Foster is the crew chief for the officiating crew tonight, he is not. It is Zach Zarba, who uh, is regarded as one of the better officials in the league. He was also the crew chief in Game 2 of the Lakers series, which featured Anthony Davis shooting 21 free throws. No, so good. take that for, for what it's worth. That, yeah, that's what I'm saying. The last time you raved about the quality yeah. of an incoming official, it was the worst officiated game of the postseason. <laughs> Feels like two contradictory yeah. sentences you just said back right. to back. you got to expect it, too. you got to expect that Jokic is going to get to look to, to look to go to the foul line. And some of those Anthony Davis fouls, were they fouls? Not necessarily, but did the Suns put themselves in a position where the foul could be called? Yes, like Cameron Payne lightly grazing him on the head from behind, Jay sticking his arm in there. You just can't do it against Jokic again tonight. 
I thought it was impressive in Game 1 that the Suns, coming out of a series against the Lakers, were, there was a lot of low scoring. There were stretches. It felt like 10 minutes where there was no points. They were able to adjust instantly. There wasn't even like a game that took them to go out there and beat a team just by outscoring them. You know, and just, I mean, that run in the, in the third quarter and into the fourth was ridiculous. But, I mean, Denver is, is such a different team from L.A. in the sense that Denver is going to play those 120 to 115 games. And the Suns adjusted instantly. It wasn't even an issue. And, and honestly, at times they looked even more comfortable. I mean, Scott Foster could have officiated that game on Monday. They were still winning with the way the crowd was involved. I don't know about that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it would have been close, though. Wow. Uh, yeah, I think you hit on something there, Luke. I, I think when you look at, you know, the, the Suns obviously throughout the years have always been labeled as a finesse team, a high scoring offensive team. Uh, they can hang their hat on defense a little bit more. But what you said, the, the adjustment they made to, to being uh, matched up against a better offensive team, they're very comfortable playing defensive basketball as well. Do you think this is the Suns team that is is most comfortable playing a, a, a myriad of different styles of basketball to win games? It, it's there, there's not one recipe for this team. That's the way that Monty Williams has certainly coached them. We've seen him throughout the regular season sort of match other teams as opposed to playing their own style, and it speaks to a strength of theirs actually to be able to do that. But to that point, and, and talking about Denver being physical, Malone saying they were soft. Aaron Gordon just said like. He was like, yeah, soft's a good word. Scare's another one, too. Mm-hmm. And and for them to say that with the yeah. playoff experience edge that they have is, is pretty significant. They're a great offensive rebounding team. They were second in the league all season. You look at guys like Aaron Gordon. It was one of those things where you can't really see it until you see it on the court. And when you saw Jermichael Green and Paul Millsap out there against the Suns second union, you were like, whoa, Denver's just way bigger. They had Porter at the three in some of those minutes, too. It's a team that averaged 18 second-chance points a game against Portland. They only had eight in the first game. So I think they're just going to really look to establish themselves physically, especially on the offensive glass. And I think the slower and less hectic this game is, I think it's actually better for Denver. That's the Chris Paul style and the, and the pace of play that he wants. But if this game is a grind and it's physical, I actually think that's what Denver wants. I um, I, I So far in this postseason, the, the front court depth has not been an issue. The going up against bigger teams, the Suns have been able to solve that. Um, I, I really think tonight is going to be a fascinating case study in all of it because I think one of the most powerful things, and I said this earlier in the show, that came out of Game 1 is that you had all five starters scoring in double figures, four of them who exceeded 20 points. Nobody shot more than 14 times. Nobody shot fewer than 12. That's about as balanced an effort as you can get. Then you throw in uh, the Tory Craig return, if you will, of being a real impact short minute kind of player. And, and that kind of thing can really feed a team. Because it's not just one guy. It's not just two guys. It's like this feeling that we are adding layers and layers of steel to our exterior. So I'm going to be really curious how that looks tonight. Yeah, because Denver, I mean, a lot of this hinges on Porter, but even with Porter, they they just don't have enough guys to outscore the Suns if the Suns play well. You know, you start mm-hmm. to look at, at Denver's path to, to, to winning this series. Again, I think they have to win tonight because I don't see the Suns losing four or five to this team uh, the way they're constructed because the Suns, as Bick just said, if one guy's not scoring, somebody else will. And I feel pretty confident that at some point in the series, there's going to be a Devin Booker game where he just goes off and the Suns probably win that game too. That was the weirdest part about Game 1 that we didn't really get to talk about that much just because there was so much to talk about from this game. Mm-hmm. But when you zoom out and look at who were the best players in that game, like obviously Jokic, Booker, Paul, Ayton are, are up there somewhere. But players that exceeded there and just played really well, 
Campazzo and, and Gordon on Denver were both great. Mikel Bridges was awesome. Torrey Craig was awesome. And, and those types of role players fluctuating and, and changing how the series goes, I, I wonder how much of that will translate from Game 2. Because to speak on Bridges specifically, all the game plan stuff we talk about, I don't think they're going to look at Game 1 and say, like, okay, we need to neutralize Bridges a bit. They're, no. they're still going to welcome that, and he has to know that. And there was a moment in the second quarter, late in the first half, where he passed up an open three and drove instead. And Chris Paul talked to him for five seconds and said, shoot the ball. <laughs> he kept shooting the ball. He's going to need to keep shooting the ball. And he has to know coming into Game 2, and, and really the rest of this playoff run, that he is going to have those shots, and he needs to take them. Well, I thought another uh, role player that didn't perform up to his capability that was a big factor in Game 1, and it was a negative factor for Denver, was Monte Morris. We we all raved about him, and, and maybe we got teased a little bit by the back-to-back 20-plus uh, point games that he had in the Portland series, which was his best two-game offensive output. He was pretty terrible. One for 10. One for 10. I think it was a minus 28 for the game. I'd be shocked if he plays that poorly again because he, he was completely outplayed by Cameron Payne. Well, that was the thing with campaign in Game 1, right, uh, of the Lakers series where we saw him have that game, and it turned out he didn't play that well in Game 6 either, but we were like, okay, maybe he's not going to be like a, a stellar player for the series. Turns out he kind of was. But in Game 1, we were like, okay, there's no way he plays that bad, and I think Denver has to feel confident in that too, knowing that that was Morris's worst game of the series. Yeah, another factor, and we're uh, continuing our Suns roundtable playoff discussion. Luke Lipinski, Kellen Olsen here with uh, Bickley and Murata. Uh, it's one of the biggest stories of the playoffs so far for the Suns, and that is now uh, four home games they've played at Phoenix Suns Arena. The crowd has pretty much been uh, you know, better each time out. It's a national story now with the way the crowd was in, in Game 1 against the Nuggets. Kellen, you've attended a lot of Phoenix Suns games over the years. <laughs> How, how would you describe what you felt in that arena on Monday night? But, but you have to compare it to like a game against Minnesota on a Tuesday night in January. In 2018. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or even oh, better, right, in, tw- right, in 2021, right. because you, you were there from the beginning too, pretty much, and how weird was it being in an empty arena and ending the season with what we're ending it with? It reminded me of what was lacking, and I think uh, all of us have talked about this to a certain extent. Me and Dan certainly did, and like covering our first baseball game without fans. And it's like yeah. you once you do that, you realize that Every sport has its own atmosphere within it. And basketballs has always been those peaks of the game when the crowd really, really gets into it. The game that I always think about that comes to mind for me was what took over the duration of a game was that all-time great 73-win Warriors team. They had 15 threes in the first half, and every time Steph Curry touched the ball, there was like this murmur around the crowd, and they were just waiting to see what he was doing. And in this game, it was, it was a different type of deal with every big moment that there was for the crowd to be ready to erupt, they were ready. Yeah. They were just waiting for the ball to go in so they could start screaming. Yeah. And, and that was, reminded to me, like, okay, like we're in an atmosphere now. Yeah, that's a great point. And I said there was an anticipatory feel to that crowd in Game 1 that I, 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 I don't know when I've heard it last, and it's exactly that. Near the end of, of half-court shot clock possessions, when the crowd knew a shot had to be coming, you could hear that, that murmur start. In transition, you could feel a crescendo built. They were so, their RPM level in Game One was off the chain. Great, mm-hmm. they were in the moment on top of everything. Like you said, just looking for ways and reasons and min- and times when they could, you know, yeah, chasing that next. That's what it explosive was. moment. Chasing the next explosive moment, which is that's exactly so, what was happening. Which is so much the antithesis of what Phoenix crowds oh. are, are normally known for. It's, Why do you think I'm so stunned? Be seen and not heard is usually the, the you know the, the the moniker for Phoenix crowds, 
Unless you're at 16 at the Phoenix Open. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. Yeah, it, it is for me, too. But, I, I mean, I do think the Suns, separately from all the other teams, just because that was the first team here, we've talked about this. I mean, that's that's the team. You talk to somebody that's lived in Phoenix for 30 years, they're like, no, the Suns. If I can have one team win, I want it to be the Suns. I do feel like back in the seven seconds or less era, that was obviously a really, just a really, really strong uh, home court advantage. But... Just with so many different factors at play right now, I still think nationally people look and they're like, wow, you know, the the Suns have a full arena and we're coming out of a year where nobody could have fans. That's why it's so loud. It's like you're missing the fact that this team missed the playoffs for 11 years. Mm -hmm. And for the last five or six years, some of those were very bad. Devin Booker was doing this and people nationally were like, no, he's not because they weren't watching. There's a lot more than to me than just, hey, we have a crowd again. It's like you have a hungry, angry crowd. There's a funny thing happening in Denver right now where the Avalanche are in the middle of a series with the Vegas Golden Knights as well. And mm-hmm. Vegas, a couple of games ago, boosted their capacity to 100%. And, and the ball arena is still somewhere around 60% right now where they're allowing about 10,000 people in. And then we joked about this before the mics went on. When Tory Craig had that dunk and you could just feel the the stadium vibrating through your TV, the people in Denver are like, oh, like, man, we got to get that building packed because the home court advantage that the Suns have compared to other teams, especially in the series, is pretty dramatic. Yeah, and, and I spent a lot of time yesterday talking about how coming out of a pandemic, this might be a, a new awakening in the performative arts and the athletic arts and all that kind of stuff. The Suns are going to be at the forefront of this because they are the first they're among the first sport, sporting franchises to have significant home court, home field advantages in games that matter since fans returned. Yeah. And, and we've seen it a little bit. We saw it with Phil Mickelson when he won his major. We saw it in Madison Square Garden on a couple of evenings. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is different. And for Stephen A. Smith, if you're, if you're the Clippers, you'd be at a real disadvantage if you're... Yeah playing the Suns in the Western Conference Finals. And and there's a difference between the Suns getting to do this and, like, the Texas Rangers having a full crowd. Like, cool, good for you guys. But you're talking about, you know, very early season baseball (laughs) for a team that's not going anywhere. Rangers game's wide open. You want to go? Eh, not really. Just because you can go doesn't mean you want to go. There's a a very simple human element to it where I believe it was Jokic or, or Malone, one of the two said, like, I don't think the crowd played a factor in the run. It's like, how does it not feel chaotic and frenetic when the team is just slowly getting to that point where they're putting you out of the game as the crowd is going insane? There's no way to not feel at least a little bit rattled which, unless you've had dozens of games of experience, which, funnily enough, looking through that roster, Jokic is there. Facundo Campazzo has played in crazy atmospheres in sure. Europe over the course of his career, so he probably wasn't there. But, I mean, everyone else on that team had to feel a little bit of, like, uneasiness. Which, Porter, and, and for, Porter especially. Yeah, and for, yeah. for Nuggets, Nuggets personnel to come out and say that, and I know there's psychology involved in it, it's the wrong psychology to use. You're almost challenging a bloodthirsty <laughs> crowd to be louder yeah. and more impactful in Game 2 than they were in Game 1. I think you acknowledge it, and maybe it, it satisfies the, the, the crowd. Hey, th- they heard us, uh, but now you, you're, you're challenging us? We can get louder. How much do you think this is impacting a guy like Aiton? Because to Kellen's point, you know, his whole second year, there basically weren't fans. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he was suspended at the start of the year when there were. So he not only is going through the extreme everybody else is of, okay, it's been a year and a half since I've heard of a, a crowd like this. He's really never heard a home crowd like this because back in, in you know his first year there there just wasn't a lot of winning. He's getting confirmation that they're with him too. Yeah, it's been a very divided fan base on his career in the young mm-hmm. time, and for every positive play that he makes that's to get a true. big roar from the that's crowd, that's got to feel good for him. Yeah, listen all day for your chance to win a pair of tickets to tonight's sold out 
Suns Nuggets playoff game. Uh, it is the hottest tickets in town game day giveaway. Just listen for that sounder and uh, be the correct caller, and you can win a pair of those tickets. Coming up next, there's one thing the Nuggets do have that the Suns don't have going into game two, and that's the league's MVP. We'll get into uh, the workload of Nikola Jokic and the reaction to the MVP voting next. Bickley and Murata, along with Luke Lipinski and Kellen Olsen here on 98.7 FM, Arizona Sports Station. FM, Arizona's Sports Station. The hottest ticket in town game day giveaway. There's your sounder right there. Means caller number 8, 602-260-9870. If you are that caller, you're going to win a pair of tickets to tonight's Phoenix Suns-Denver Nuggets playoff game. Listen all day for your chance to score the hottest tickets in town. Phoenix Suns playoff tickets, but we're looking for caller number 8 right now at 602-260-9870. Good luck. The home of Phoenix Suns playoff basketball. 98.7 FM, Arizona's sports station. Suns playoff coverage presented by Four Peaks Kilt Lifter. Bickley and Murata talk Suns in the playoffs. Suns playoffs roundtable special. As you said, I have some important news. That is that it's my honor to announce that Nikola Jokic is this year's key most valuable player. Congratulations, Nikola. I just want to tell you guys that this is not my individual honor, of course, but I couldn't do it without you guys. So it's my honor, it's my trophy, whatever, but it's, you guys are a big part of it. So thank you, thank you, everybody who is in this room. That's definitely one thing that's changed between Game 1 and Game 2. It's official now. Nikola Jokic will take the court as the league's MVP for Game 2. 41st overall draft pick in 2014. Uh, there's a lot of footage circulating today from that draft telecast that Nikola Jokic was actually drafted in the middle of a Taco Bell commercial. During a commercial break. <laughs> for a quesarito. Yeah. Uh, and they just had the graphic it's on fabulous. the bottom. Selection is in. It's Nikola it's Jokic. Fabulous. Um, how is his nickname not Quesarito Jokic at this point? <laughs> it's been great to watch Suns fans be like, all right, I got to figure out how to hate this guy. I don't know how to hate him, but I'm, I'm going to try. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to the Lakers series, I think it was slightly easier was for people to do that. Luke, easy. I think you just stumbled upon something I know people have been looking for in this series is, that, you know, after Beat LA is such a convenient chant, what do you chant in, ser- in, in, in round two? <laughs> K. K- Cesarito. <laughs> uh, if that happens tonight, it'll bring a tear to my eye. Look, yeah. I, and uh, Kellen Olsen, Luke Lipinski, in with Bickley Murata for our Suns playoff roundtable. I think we're all bracing for a much different looking uh, treatment of Nikola Jokic uh, from the officials. The fact that he did not get a free throw in in Game One, I think, was a was a big storyline. Limited his effectiveness. Credit goes to DeAndre Ayton, but also, you know. How much? Uh, how much does him winning the MVP award officially yesterday affect the way this game is handled tonight? I, I know you'll never get a concrete answer to that, but it's something to consider. You don't want your MVP getting swept, right? Is, is that is that kind of what you're saying, or, or losing in five games, or losing his individual matchup to a third year center? Yeah, yeah. I, I it, would say that okay. that would be a bad look for Nikola Jokic. 
I'm curious just to see how they bring that on themselves, right, in terms of where Jokic is getting the ball, how he's used, because there are different ways to use him than the way they did in game one. I think that what we saw was if he catches it from 18 feet out and does like a dribble spin, DeAndre is just going to move his feet, hold his hand up, and be completely fine there. Do you get him some deep seals, perhaps? Do Mm -hmm. you get him as more of a ball handler with a ball screen actually coming? Because that's the part of Jokic that's so weird is you, you don't picture him and see an agile guy. But for his size, like... You can set a pin-down screen for him off the ball, and he can wiggle around a little bit and get around. And they use him a bit like that in Game 1. They'll do that a lot more in Game 2, I think. And it's going to be on DeAndre to get to those spots again without fouling. I think that's the one thing we're all dreading is when Jokic has the ball in the first 90 seconds is just, don't foul, don't foul, don't foul. Yeah. All game. Yeah, listen, a couple things that I've noticed about this. I, I I think that there's... As much as we marvel at what DeAndre Ayton has done, the the transformation has been stunning. It's like it's like Frankenstein's monster. You know, Doctor Frankenstein had this idea of putting together this creature, but was still awed when it actually came to life. This is kind of the way I feel about DeAndre Ayton. We all knew that he had this kind of potential, but when you see it manifest itself out of nowhere it's like whoa it's alive it's alive (laughs) right and so that's kind of the way i feel about this and if we feel this i would venture to guess that inside the nba community players feel it a little bit and maybe i'm reading into this but andre drummond he really took a couple of easy way out cheese ball ways out to try to defend DeAndre Ayton, flopping and taking charges. You mean launching himself into the third row was cheesy? (laughs) Because I think that if people thought, okay, this kid can be, he can shrivel, you can get him out of a game, you can knock him off his mark, I don't think you play defense that way. And Nikola Jokic, if, if Nuggets fans are complaining about his lack of free throws, Nikola Jokic didn't exactly initiate a lot of contact on DA in Game 1. So so the, all those things that you mentioned that he's capable of, those deep seals, I think they're going to... Uh, that, to me, is, is going to be where they're going to try to exploit this. But I also think DA has been so solid at defending with force and not fouling that maybe he's actually getting respect from referees as well. I, I don't know. It's the most, to me, the most impressive thing he's done is to be able to defend the way he has. And we've never really had to be like, oh, he's got five fouls here in the, in the early in the fourth quarter. We got to change what we're doing. And I mean, you know, even go back to the Lakers series. I understand Anthony Davis took a ton of free throws, but like. For for all the calls LeBron gets and also looks for, he didn't shoot a ton of free throws in that series, and I'm sure some of that was that he was hurt. But at a certain point, if Jokic doesn't get to the line very much against Knight, I have to wonder if maybe this is just what the Suns are doing defensively, if they are just that good defensively where they are not putting themselves in bad positions to take bad fouls. Like, Jokic is going to shoot some free throws tonight. He's I, I would... I have to think Denver right now is like, hey, you got to get to the line. You you yeah. have to be the alpha in this game. That was only the sixth time this year, including obviously the regular season, that he didn't shoot a free throw in a game. Two of those times were against the Suns. Yeah. Well, the the awkward part about this is that both the Nuggets and the Suns are bottom five in the league in free throw rate, and Jokic himself averaged five free throws a game this year, and that's it. And double-digit free throws in a game this season for the MVP, he only did it ten times in the regular season. It's not really a part of his game either, and it's a bit of an awkward ask for him to yeah. suddenly be that guy yeah. who takes 12, 14 free throws in a playoff game. And I wonder how much of an effect it's going to have just on what they're trying to do, if that's what they're really trying to emphasize, because it's an important part of this game, too, because it's going to slow it down and allow him to rest more, which he clearly needs over the course of this series. I'm I'm kind of curious, Kellen, what you think about this. What, what is your best theory about what has sparked DeAndre Ayton's level of engagement and focus in the postseason? Is it because... 
um, fatherhood? Is it, it, it as he finally realized how important winning basketball games is because of the culture that is around him now? I mean, this is a kid that was part of an Arizona team that lost to Buffalo. Okay, this yeah. is. And, yeah, I remember and, that. Yeah, and so so maybe maybe I don't now remember that. maybe now after all this time with guys like with a guy like Chris Paul, he's realized this is wait this is serious business. Maybe he's grown to love this team his teammates so much because of this support system that he he's like okay this means a lot to them so this has to mean a lot to me. What do you think? I think it's a mix of all those factors. I think that. Everything that has come along this season, it's been really interesting to watch how he, I guess, evolved is is the right word over the course of the season. He certainly evolved in the playoffs, but in the first 10 games of the season, he was a focal point of this offense to the point where Chris Paul kept getting him the ball or trying to get him the ball to where I proclaimed, and, and I wasn't saying this seriously, but kind of in a joking manner. Is Chris Paul willing to lose games to get him going, to get him as a real point in this offense? They pivoted away from that. They had him in a more simplified role, and it really worked out for them. I think that there's just a different mix of factors that go into this as well, where this is a simple, defined moment that he's ready for with the team that he has around. I think that he knows in his role what he's being asked to do. And again, this is a team like that they really genuinely like each other. Mm-hmm. They hang out all the time, and, and these are guys that are really invested in this for each other, not just for themselves, but yeah. for each other as well. And I think that stuff can really translate magic. to a young player and just watching him sort of, whenever he talks about, like, book especially, he lights up. Like, he he really genuinely likes these guys a lot. And I think that all those things kind of come together for him to the right moment yeah. in this playoff series. And I think that if we were talking about a different team, perhaps, that he wasn't having such a star-studded matchup against, maybe it would be different, but he's showing up for the moment against Anthony Davis and Jokic, too. Yeah, and everybody knows that loss to Buffalo, that was Alonzo Trier's fault. <laughs> right, Jarrett? <laughs> Among others. <laughs> Tucson, Tucson. Richard Long was our winner. He was caller number eight. He's got a pair of tickets to tonight's sold-out Suns-Nuggets game two. You got another chance to win with us in the 12 o'clock hour and 1 o'clock, and then four more chances to win with Burns and Gambo today. So keep listening. Listen for that sounder. As we continue our Suns playoff roundtable, Luke Lipinski, Kellen Olsen, and with Bickley and Murata here on 98.7 FM, Arizona Sports Station. The home of Phoenix Suns playoff basketball, 98.7 FM, Arizona's sports station. Suns playoff coverage presented by Four Peaks Kilt Lifter. Bickley and Marotta talk Suns in the playoffs. Suns playoffs roundtable special. They have to be almost perfect, Denver, you know, with, you know, how they've been limited with, you know, with no Jamal Murray and Will Barton and P.J. Dozier, guys like that we've talked about. But, you know, when you're getting one for ten performances from Monty Morris off the bench and, you know, Michael, I thought Michael Porter Jr., I think he must have tweaked his, a bat, his back, I guess, last night and, and didn't play much in the fourth quarter. You have to rely on the other guys to, to step up. And, um, you know, I think Phoenix is, you know, a better team you know, from one to, you know, from one to nine. That's Bobby Marks, CSPN NBA front office insider on with Doug and Wolf yesterday here on 98.7 FM Arizona Sports Station. And I'm wondering if that's something the Suns need to combat at a team level. Is that thinking that Denver needs to be almost perfect, that the separation between these two teams is so great? Luke Lipinski, Kellen Olsen in uh, with Bickley and Murata. Uh, are we putting, Bick, too much stock in that big run the Suns made? Are these teams actually 
more competitively matched than what Game 1 showed? And, and how much do the Suns have to combat that? I, I don't know because, again, it's, it's, the, it's the ceiling of the Suns that I think is the variable in this, and there's a lot that fuels it. The, the ever-growing persona of DA, the influence of the fans, uh, all of this, I, I would not be surprised if tonight's another one-sided basketball game. I, I just think that I, I've seen this before with teams that get by a hurdle, and now it's just the tailwind behind them is way too much for an opponent to deal with. That might be the case here. I, I, I don't know. It, it's I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, because if the Nuggets win this game, the whole narrative is flipped. Yeah. Kellen, your th- thoughts on that? We also had a game that was fairly close that Denver was in control of two and a half quarters in without Jokic playing that well. And and I wonder from, from like a trap perspective if the Suns could start to trap themselves inside of that. And looking over the course of Denver's time with under Michael Malone, they've always been great at adjustments over the course of the regular season and the postseason as well. They're going to tweak a lot of stuff tonight, and I think they're going to come out entirely different, and I think from a mentality standpoint, the Suns need to be in the same space, and now, I think after Game 1, it's impossible not to feel like they're the better team in this series, but they can't get themselves in that trap of just thinking they're the favorites all of a sudden. Luke, while the, the, the Nuggets will come out and tweak things, the Suns will change some things too. I think one of the things that we'll see change is the, the number of shot attempts for Devin Booker, who was uh, only one game this year, did he shoot less than 12 times. So to see that number was a little bit alarming. He was very efficient on those shot attempts. I mean, what do you expect from Devin Booker tonight? I, I still, like I said earlier, I think there's just going to be a game where he just takes over. And, and it sort of goes back to what Bick was saying. I, if you just look at these two teams, the way they are currently set up, and, and Jamal Murray is obviously not part of the equation, I think the Suns' ceiling is clearly considerably higher than Denver. That, that doesn't mean you win the series. I mean, you mm-hmm. have to go out there and play to your potential. But playing to your potential, obviously a lot of that hinges on Devin Booker. And I just, you know, like Kellen just said, we, we halftime of that game, even midway through the third quarter, Denver looked like they were in control and they weren't even playing that well. They're certainly a team that can win the series, but you start to look at what would have to happen for them to win it. I keep coming back to Michael Porter Jr. If he's not right, I don't know who else scores for Denver to mm-hmm. keep up with all the guys that can score. I think they have to win tonight. I think they have to get Will Barton back. And honestly, the other part of the equation that I don't think we're going to see, I think the Suns would have to let up and, and not play their game for four games in this series, or at least a couple, to get Denver really back in it. And that's that's a lot to have to go wrong. And I just I, I keep coming back to I don't think Monty Williams or Chris Paul or Devin Booker will let this Suns team slip up like that. No, nope. they just I, defensively it just doesn't. I don't think they feel threatened by Denver at all. Yeah, other than Jokic, right now. I yeah, mean, Porter looked really good in the first half. Yeah, but still, it's only two guys. Yeah, yeah, but when his own head coach comes out after the game and says I pulled him out because he didn't look right, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that's alarming. Going back to the Booker question, we saw a lot of different looks defensively uh, on Booker in the first uh, first game of this series. I think their most effective look was having Aaron Gordon on him. Kellen, I'll start with you. Do you do you expect Denver to go more to that early on as opposed to maybe messing around with Austin Rivers on Devin Booker? Yeah, I think it would show... I, I'm not sure if desperation is the right word, but it would show where their concern level is at with the series if they start with Gordon on him right away. Now, now that's a different thing because the Suns are going to be ready for that with off-ball motion because we saw with Aaron Gordon when when Devin had him on the ball, ISO tried to get around him. Gordon's just a really quick, strong guy, so getting around him for any guard is difficult. But if you put him through off-ball motion and make a big guy like that kind of move around screens the way he can't with Devin, that's where you can find success for him and and how that changes the flow of the game is interesting. And now I think that's... um, 
maybe that was like the gamut that they decided is they would rather defend Devin as a team to start the series than individually because I think it becomes much more of a one-on-one thing whereas Rivers on him was a team thing but they weren't really doubling him either and then we saw Maybe they didn't expect Devin to go to the post that much. I think all of us did, watching him over the course of his career against smaller guards. So there are a lot of adjustments left for them to make on Booker, for sure. In terms, Bick, uh, of maybe Denver's reaction to what they saw in Game 1, do you think the bigger uh uh-oh for them was, wow, the Suns can beat our brains in when Devin Booker's not a huge part of the offense? Or, uh uh-oh, Chris Paul's shoulder is feeling pretty good. Oh, that's a good (laughs) question. Um, Maybe the former, not the latter, but but this is, again, this is all speaking to where I think the Suns team is building and going right now. Uh, Every every member of that starting five now has had signature moments in the postseason, Mm -hmm. and and Mikhail joined that club, and and the look in Chris Paul's eye in the fourth quarter uh, in Game 1, that was the first time when when it looked like it, the the fear kind of was all gone from him. He's like, okay, I I, I I'm back, and I, I don't know, you know. It, it, I think we've seen how quickly this stuff can turn. Um, one rolled ankle, one flare up. You you don't want to get too ahead of yourselves, but I just to me, I I just I I, I think the Suns are riding something really powerful right now. It'd be real disappointing if they let go of this rain of these reins right now. It looked like Chris Paul was like healing during that game. Like you could see him. <laughs> you got that, and and I don't know that I've ever seen anybody have an emotional growth spurt the way DeAndre Ayton has. Like I don't know how else to really describe what we've seen from him. You, to watch both of those things play out during the playoffs, uh, the Paul thing. I mean, obviously that's just that's the way it happened, and he got hurt in the playoffs. But for Ayton to evolve emotionally right in front of our eyes, and then for Chris Paul, it felt like to like reattach his arm and just really get going in the fourth quarter. To your point, if I'm Denver, that would be most scary because we just did an hour on on why the Suns probably should win the series, and we barely mentioned Chris Paul. I know. And, and can I? And you mentioned Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and DeAndre. Oh, hi, Jared. Hi, hey, guys. Uh, I just want to before we break here. <laughs> we mentioned all the superstars. Isn't the way that the Suns truly dominate this series? If Mikel Bridges and Jay Crowder continue to hit their threes, that's when this team is unstoppable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long did it take Jay Crowder to shoot his first three in the series? Like seventeen seconds. Was it that long? I, maybe it wasn't. He maybe I I was doing warmups, <laughs> introduction. He seriously, I think I believe he took the first shot in the series, and it was a three right off the tip off. Yeah, and I was like, well, here we go. It's, He's, it's round two. He is not shy. No, he is not. Uh, going back to your point about Chris Paul healing during that game, I think I'll, uh, I'm speaking Kellen's language here. Wouldn't it be awesome if some sort of like advanced statistical oh boy. meters, ha- they had like a health meter? <laughs> I'm going like old school. Like Remember the video game Gauntlet? Where, yeah. <laughs> where it actually measured what your health was during the game and you could see it? That'd be awesome. He said it loosens up over the course of the game. Uh, it certainly looked that after that way. game one. And I think that that's been the most interesting part of watching him with the shoulder is when... When is he able to pick those pockets if he still can? And, and that's, the, that's the scariest part for Denver, perhaps, is not that he's at 100%, but yeah, if the game's there for five minutes in the fourth quarter, he's going to win it. But that's not what happened in the Lakers series. In the Lakers series, but he was not 100%. On, he was more hurt. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. game two is when that scenario really presented itself, and it turned into a three-and-a-half-minute game in the fourth quarter, and, and he couldn't take it over. Um, and and the, you know the Suns didn't have that luxury. He looks like a completely different player from that point. From, from now that he did at that point, yeah, there was a wonder if he could even dribble the ball <laughs> at some points in that Lakers series. So he's, he's definitely only, changed. That yeah. was like a week and a half ago. Two yeah. weeks ago, it feels like it was like ten years ago. It honestly does. Yeah, um, the playoffs. It's a grind, both positively and negatively, for for, for every for everybody involved. 
Uh, real quick around the uh, around the horn, Luke. What do you think happens tonight? I think tonight is going to be close. I think Denver's going to throw everything they have at the Suns. Obviously, they have to, and I, and I think the Suns are going to win a close one tonight. Kellen. Uh, Suns win. I think Book has a big game and kind of senses that he can put them on their back feet pretty early in the series. Yeah, I think the Suns are going to win going away again at the end. Close for a while, win going away at the end. Uh, higher or lower differential than the 17-point differential in, in Game 1? Uh, probably lower, yeah. that's yeah. I just wanted to end with like a little card sharks action. Higher or lower <laughs> yeah. than a 17? Yeah, okay. Kellen, higher or lower <laughs> than a 17? <laughs> lower. Luke, lower? Yeah, I'll, I'll go lower. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go single digits. Tonight. I'll go lower. It'll I'll, be a slog, I think. How many housewives say they no longer make whoopee? <laughs> <laughs> Higher or lower than... See, like Chris Paul, Jarrett saves his best stuff right at the end of the segment. Jarrett, you might have made up for yesterday's Girl, Girl Fieri, Fieri joke. joke. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Wow. Uh, Luke, Kellen, thanks so much thanks, uh, guys. for uh, coming in, spending an hour with us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, you thanks, can guys. hear Luke on uh, pregame coverage. Not today, right, Luke? But uh, extended again, starting for game three? Th- uh, Friday and Sunday, I believe. There you go. And uh, Kellen stuff all over ArizonaSports.com. Thanks again, guys. Coming up next, the Bickley Blast. It's Bickley and Murata live from the Ak Chin Community Studios, 98.7 FM. Arizona Sports Station.